Just want to say hello. Oh, hello. <laughs> Welcome to the Circle of Dads, the space for sharing stories about the struggles and triumphs of fatherhood and learning to become better men. tuning into the Circle of Dads podcast. This is Ryan. I'm your host. And today we are joined by Scott Hambrick of Online Great Books. And uh, uh, Scott is also a starting strength coach and and has uh, two podcasts that he's a member of. And he'll talk about those on the show. And we kind of dive into some of the works of uh, Socrates and Plato and, and how important they are for us to read because they apply to wherever you're at and whatever your life experiences are, you know, you can, well, man, I'm going to let him tell you. Um, it was a great conversation. I really appreciate him. And if you'll listen at the end, uh, we talk about a promo code for the circle of dads podcast. So here's Scott Hambrick with online great books. So how are you, sir? I am well, I am well. We got hooked up by Darren Deaton. Yeah, he's a force of nature. How do you know Darren? Uh, I was a starting strength coach as well. Okay. And worked with him at Barbell Logic Online Coaching and uh, go down and visit him and Michelle and train at his gym when, when we get a chance and become a family friend. Yeah, Darren's Darren's a good dude. He's a, I, I met Darren, I was building CrossFit equipment oh, about eight, eight years ago or so. And um, I had a welding company. But somebody mm. said, hey, you could probably build this equipment cheaper. And so I tried for a while and found out that I couldn't. And, right. And Darren was was one of my first clients. I had, I had two guys that were going to buy stuff from me. And one guy bought a whole bunch of stuff without even seeing the product and was just, uh, and he's one of my dear friends now. And, and then Darren, I showed him a sketch and a 3D rendering and, and he said, uh, he said, yeah, I need you to build one so I can look at it. And so I had to build two to sell him one. Right. And then we've, we've been buddies ever since. He's a, he's someone that's really dear to us. Yeah. He's a, he's a great guy. Yeah. He's a, yeah, yeah. He's a great guy. He's, a, he's high energy, man. <laughs> yeah. High energy, Darren Deaton. Yeah. He pivots quick. That's for yeah. sure. So, um, so what's your background? Well, I, I owned a small business here in Tulsa for 20 years. Um, it's called Data Storage, and that's what we did. We stored data for uh, for different companies uh, on contract, and we had, I don't know, I had 22 employees. We had like 60,000 per foot facility, and uh, got a couple kids and homeschooled them and uh, ended up starting a uh, the, that online great books business. Okay. Started doing Okay. And, uh, and I got tired of the main business and I sold that thing in December, December of 2018. And, uh, <clears throat> I got a 15 year old and a 17 year old. And, uh, many years ago, one of my, one of my favorite uncles had told me we were talking about like stay at home moms and stuff, you know? And he said, I think it'd be ideal if the dad could stay at home once those kids hit like deep teenage years. Sure. Cause, uh, they need, they need a little, uh, they need a little extra influence at that time, you know, Firmer hand. so, uh, yeah. So, well, yeah. And, and modeling, you know, you know, I don't know that they need 
that they need to beaten <laughs> or or even or even uh or even a, much guidance but they need i think they need uh i think they need the modeling of the the things that you want them to do and how you want them to be and uh and uh attention to particularly since they're females they're both daughters and uh, so so that that helped motivate me punching out of that main business too so i'm I'm home with them all day and uh seems to be seems to be the right thing to do and they're they're homeschooled so you, so you're you're doing homeschooling well or is it sort one of. of the curriculums and you uh kind well, of frank frankly we've really unschooled these girls uh so for gosh i don't know six six or seven years um, we've really unschooled them. Um, for people who don't know what that is, you know, they don't do anything. <laughs> sounds like a terrible idea. It sounds like a terrible idea. But uh, here at our house, you know, I run onlinegreatbooks.com. Like part of my job is to study Aristotle and Descartes and Aquinas and stuff. So sure. in, in, and then their mom, their mom's a strength coach and she's always, you know, pouring over the anatomy textbooks and, and so on. And so we have a culture of learning around here anyway, and that's just what we all do. And that's what they have done. Um, and they pursued their own interests, which is scary for a lot of people uh, because they're used to seeing normal children who are acculturated by television and TV sure, uh, that have pretty shallow interests. But uh, come to find out about a year ago, my oldest one said, Hey, I want to go to this little school here in Tulsa that offers a, uh, a la carte classes. There's a little little K through 12 school here that you can just go take one class from if you want. Really? And she said, I, I, yeah, she said, I want to go take these classes and here are the reasons why, and here's why I picked this school. And she was old enough to, I mean, she made the argument exactly as I would like anyone to make the argument. You know, it was rational. She would, she had examined her own interests and had figured out what was the best way to pursue that. And I said, okay, let's go do that. So we went down to the school and she applied and uh, they said, well, we're going to have to do some testing, you know, let you in the school and so on. So I said, okay, well, let's schedule that. And we got in the car and headed home. I said, hey, listen, you hadn't turned a tap at like regular schooling stuff for about six years. Uh, you might, you might crash real bad. <laughs> but, you know, hey, let's go do it, you know. And uh, she went and she tested where she was supposed to on some things and above level where she, on, on some others. And off she went, you know, and we hadn't done a test. We hadn't done an achievement test. We hadn't done anything other than encourage them and answer questions when they had them for about six or seven years, five, six, seven years. I don't even remember how long. Then her little sister said, well, I'd like to go this year. So I had the same talk, like, look, uh, you haven't taken any tests. Um, might not be good, um, but she did just fine. She did. She tested where she was supposed to on some things and uh, quite a bit better on some others. And, uh, you know, no structure, no structure. They pursued what they wanted to. So they would spend time on like Khan Academy. Okay. Uh, they would spend time on some other little websites. They read a lot. Um, and, you know, they got where they needed to be. And uh, it was only through us just sort of encouraging them and answering questions. So they're like, well, if I wanted to learn something about algebra, where would I do that? Well, maybe Khan, try that. Off they would go. And uh, that's what unschooling had been for us. And it worked so far. And they, so check, check me in 15 years. Yeah. They, they don't have to, um, you know, they're not sitting at a desk all day, just checking boxes and turning into little robots. Yeah. You know, you think about all the time you spend in line 
you know, going to the lunchroom or coming back or waiting for Johnny to shut up or, you know, the, the slowest kid in the class to finish their homework or whatever the heck it is. And you could probably distill most regular public school days down to, you know, maybe 90 minutes of hitting it hard, uh, maybe three hours at the most of hitting it hard. And, uh, it doesn't, that's a pretty low, that's a pretty low threshold of effort that a kid has to put in if you're doing it at homeschool with no distractions. You know, and I think especially, uh, I would admit, my daughter's 13 and, um, the social pressures fitting in, um, the things that they worry, especially teenage girls that age, you know, they're just mean to each other. And she, yeah. we've, we've moved her from a couple of, uh, different schools. Uh, and she moved and went to a new school district. It's a pretty affluent school district around here. And she didn't quite fit in, um, wasn't doing real well. And, uh, we moved her to homeschool and she Good got, deal. she got caught up. And then, um, and then now ultimately she got, she's in a, uh, a very small Christian Academy and, and she's doing great out there, but it, it's a, a totally different social structure. I would imagine there's pros and cons to it. Like, um, your, your girls don't have to sit there and, and worry about being bullied or have somebody being mean to them or, you know, worried about, um, superficial things that are, are just clouding a teenage girl's mind. Right. They get to sit there and worry about exactly what they're doing and all their energy goes into what they're truly interested in and it's a safe space and so that's really awesome that you that y'all decided to do that. Did y'all were they ever in public school? No, they never went to public schools. My my wife taught uh, she was a kindergarten teacher at a little Benedictine um Catholic school, really kind of snotty prep school really <laughs> here in uh, in Tulsa. And, uh, I think the oldest one went through fifth grade and the youngest one went through third there and she worked, charity worked there. So to, to homeschool them was actually a decision for her to really, for her to, you know, completely, <laughs> completely reject that school, like not just for the kids, but for herself. So she quit the day they quit, you know, and then, uh, we, we brought it all, brought it all here to the house and, uh, it's yeah, probably, probably the best thing we've ever done. Yeah. yeah. The, the schooling, schooling is a really odd thing. Um, it's, it's really like we, we play this game, me and the kids when we're driving, like traveling to some other state, we play, we play the penitentiary or school. <laughs> like you drive by this place and it's got a weird chain link fence and it's like tip up concrete panels, you know, construction, you know, and a flat roof. And it's like, is that a penitentiary or a school? Oh, it's a Votech. Okay, it's kind of in between. Well, it's, it, they, <laughs> it depends on which direction the the bar bar is pointed. That's right. That's right. I haven't tipped them. I haven't. I haven't told them that. Oh, we were in idea. Missouri. <laughs> we we were in Missouri the other day, and and uh, penitentiary or school, and we were ha- the the car was evenly split, and it was the uh, whatever county uh, juvenile detention center. Um, but sc- schools are a really odd thing. You know, only fish hang out in schools and people. And, they, you know, schooling is about learning to stand in line or um, put your name in the top right-hand corner or move when they ring a bell. It's really not about education. And we, I've never been interested in school. I wasn't interested at the time, but I've been very interested in education. And uh, it was a delight for me when, they, when I finally got the wife to agree to get them out of there. And uh, it's, it's borne pretty good fruit. That's the Victorian model, isn't it? Isn't that what it's called as far as uh, uh, raising little factory workers? Yeah, you know, you want to talk about school? 
So I run this online greatbooks.com, you know, where we do sort of adult education stuff. And I, I started that because because of my experience homeschooling the kids, I realized I needed something more for my own education to be able to help them. And I started reading all these, but I decided I needed to learn like the trivium, the three classical liberal, liberal arts, grammar, logic, rhetoric. Sure. And I did some more study and I decided, well, the best way for me to do that in as adult would be to like launch when it launch into one of these great books programs where you just read the Odyssey and the Iliad and Plato and Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas and all that stuff. So I started doing that in my home. And when I, when I, when I started that whole thing, uh, I started researching a little bit about school and, uh, here, 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 in a nutshell, this is where American schooling came from in general, in, in general, um, guy named Horace Mann from Massachusetts had gone to Austria or, or well, gone to what is now we call, call it Germany, but at the time it was Prussia. And they had instituted this new kind of schooling, what they called the Prussian model, which we would recognize. They, uh, they put kids in platoon sized groups. They called them classes. Uh, they had them. They had them move on the whistle or the bell at the top of the hour, right? Five minute breaks, uh, stand in line, et cetera, et cetera. And they had done that because Napoleon had rolled Prussia up twice. You know, re- Napoleon had run through Europe once. They uh, put him in exile. He escaped exile. He did it again. And the Prussians were like, "What? What happened?" And they found that they're just their sort of yeoman farmer stock when they were drafted into military service uh, were just too independent they didn't follow orders they wouldn't they wouldn't fall out on the whistle or on the bells they just you know they were unmanageable wouldn't tow the line they wouldn't tow the line and you know at the time if you think about napoleonic warfare you know you're talking about marching in these straight lines taking a knee firing a musket at somebody's head, you know and just taking volleys of fire and they wouldn't have it so the prussians decided that it was of like like uh, national defense importance to, to ch- change the character, frankly, of their farming class and their lower classes. And, and they instituted that schooling in order to do that. And Horace Mann went over there and, and uh, to ostensibly to observe that. Uh, something a lot of people don't know is that when he went, it was actually during the summer and school was out. And he never actually even saw a school in operation. He just talked to administrators and so on. But he came back and he instituted that in Massachusetts. Uh, maybe it was New York City first, and anyway, but Massachusetts became heavily involved in that, and then eventually it spread all over the country. Um, and then we got, you know, what we have, but it's really called the Prussian system. And, uh, um, and you know, the progressives, like like uh, John Dewey, who was at Harvard, uh, who was a progressive philosopher, said that we needed a different kind of education for a different kind of world. You know, it was a world of the Industrial Revolution, or by the time Dewey's there, the post-Industrial Revolution. So we're deep into the Henry Ford Model T assembly line era, and uh, and they said that they needed to, that uh, people needed educated, well, not really be educated, but trained in specific skills that would equip them for what they thought was an, a, a bold new, brave new world. And um, I think they're wrong about that, but. Um, the purposes of the schooling that uh, suited the Prussians, you know, that sort of compliance, following the orders, so on and so on, fit nicely with the, the progressive American industrial model where maybe you're not in the military, but you're at the factory and they blow a whistle 
and you have to stand here and you pull that lever and you push that button, you pull that lever and you push that button, sure. whether you want to or not, whether you find it uh, gratifying or not, that's your role. And the schools, um, the schools were both to acculturate them to that and then also to provide them with some specific training that would make them ready for that. Because, you know, if you have to go, you know, it's hard for us to even imagine if you'd walked into, well, if you had been a farmer in rural Nebraska and, um, you're talking horse drawn plows, uh, maybe no nitrogen fertilizer, like, you know, 1890s, 1900 style, uh, farming. And then come, you know, 1910 or something like that, you end up in Detroit trying to work in a factory. These people don't have mechanical skills. Uh, they've never even seen a building that size. I mean, you know, they were, they, it was entirely alien to them. So they probably did need some familiarity with some, with that following instructions. Sure. Step one, step two, step three. Um, and a whole new set of skills that they had never had any access to. So on one hand, I, I hate that model very much, but I understand that, you know, if you're going to build a 40 million model T's or however many were built, uh, you can't do that with a bunch of people that uh, had no mechanical skills and had never seen indoor plumbing. And I mean, it required something new. Um, and, and so, so it was, so it was created and, um, you know, my, my wife's granddad, uh, he died, he died almost exactly 10 years ago. And, uh, he, he was here, born here in Oklahoma and he only went to school through the eighth grade. This is a typical story. Oh, my grandparents, they only went through the school, went to school through the eighth grade. Um, but I think that school at that point was designed that by the time you went to like the eighth grade, you had pretty much everything you needed. Uh, he was a skilled technician. He could, uh, he was, a, he was a machinist. Um, he was an intelligent guy. He read a lot. Um, but at, so at that time, you know, if you went through, it went, which would have been in the thirties, if you went to grades nine through 12, um, you were legit college bound. Sure. You might get some trig, you'd get some calculus. It was a different thing. And these young people by eighth grade in the thirties were mostly prepared for what, for adulthood. And, uh, our schools have now taken on more purposes, not just preparing people for industrial society, which we don't seem to have anymore because we've destroyed our manufacturing capability. Um, but they've also, uh, it's also become a, like a juvenile detention center to just hold them till they can be tried as adults, frankly. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's, it's just a whole, the whole thing is weird, but anyway, there's Hambrick's uh, seven minute history of American <laughs> education. Well, you're obviously, I mean, you have that, I mean, uh, you're obviously an intelligent guy and you're, you're, um, have you always been educated? You said that you, you, you felt that there was a gap and that's why you started your online great books. Yeah. I, I went to a little, a little crappy school here in Oklahoma where they just, uh, warehoused and abused children and neglected them and, uh, and survived that. All right. Catoosa <laughs> public schools. Mr. Putnam was the principal and he's a hack. Uh, uh, you know, bad. It was a bad deal. Uh, I learned some stuff there, but it's, it's because I, there's Milton, the cat. He's mad about it too. Uh, I learned some stuff there, but it was because of me, not because of them. And, uh, my wife went to school there too. That's where I met her. So that was good. Um, and then I ended up going to the university of Oklahoma and, uh, 
got some, you know, science and technology background there. And so, but, 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 you know, now, nowadays education really isn't education in most cases, it's training. Sure. So my, so my schooling, even at the university was very narrow, like here's your math and here's your chemistry, you know, here's your physics, but you know, anything about, um, liberal arts education, grammar, logic, rhetoric, talk about that a little bit too, uh, philosophy, um, you know, humanities, those things that make us human is completely lacking in, lacking in the sort of science and engineering world. So I was, I was pretty lopsided, I would say, but I'd, I'd spent a number of hours sitting in a classroom though. I'd check those boxes. Sure. Um, but again, you know, education in the United States is really not education. It's mostly training because they try to create very special, very narrowly specialized graduates who are fit for specific jobs and specific industries, you know, so, so even universities have mostly become kind of kind of vocational schools, it's like a votech for engineering or for nursing or, you know, whatever the specific thing is. And I think that's best case. That's if you don't get some wackadoo degree that, that you got for vanity's sake or whatever. Yeah. So you, um, you started and it's online, great books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And tell me how, how that came about. Well, I decided that I wanted to learn about, well, I wanted to be a better, better educated person instead of just a trained person. Um, because I was, I was looking into like, how do I make my children into like well-rounded people who are best suited to be happy at some point? <laughs> yeah. That's and a good. Goal. <laughs> yeah. And, and traditionally people had educated, uh, bright kids, uh, with the trivium grammar, logic, rhetoric. And they would literally teach them Latin grammar and they'd literally teach them like Euclid's geometry and Aristotle's logic and then rhetoric. But, um, so grammar is where you learn like the, the nuts and bolts of something. Like, you know, you learn what the names of the tools are, some of the weird, the weird words that people use in the industry or in a, in a certain field of endeavor, you know, welding has those things, you know, what's MIG, what's TIG mean, what's slag, whatever. And you go to learn those things. And then that's the grammar of any subject. And you have to learn the grammar of a subject before you can do anything else. You got to get the very, very basics. What's the safety equipment look like? You don't necessarily know what it does, but you know where the gloves are and where the hood is on. And then later on, you start to learn how all these things sort of fit together when you might use a MIG welder versus a TIG welder or a stick welder or whatever. And so you learn the organizing principles and you figure out what the shielding gas does and all this stuff. You start to learn the organizing principles behind the thing. And that's the logic of the thing you're trying to learn. And then later on, you get so good at it that you start to teach other people. And that's when you get really good at it. Because when one person teaches, two people learn. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the rhetoric of the thing. So uh, some people say rhetoric is when you learn to speak convincingly or beautifully about a thing. And that's when you really know you've nailed it. So you learn, it, that's how people learn. And since, I don't know, 1000 AD, up until about 1880, that's how bright kids with resources were, were educated. Um, and so they taught them how to learn. Here are the steps to learn something. And then when you kick them out the door at that time when they're 14, <laughs> um, they knew how to learn something. And so if they, if some, they became interested in any given thing, they could go do it. <clears throat> well, I didn't have that. I just, they would just put a, they would just say, here's the syllabus and here's the textbook dummy. And the test is Friday. And I would do the questions and answers in the back of the book and I'd do my homework and then maybe I could pass the test. 
which has nothing to do with anything except what the teacher wanted. So I was like, man, I want to go get some of this, 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 uh, trivium stuff, this three classical liberal arts. I want to go get that. And, uh, by that time I was, I don't know, 36, 37 or something like that. And probably too old to be trying to learn Latin and be busy and run a business and have some kids and an old lady and everything. And I found the great books of the Western world program that, uh, Mortimer Adler had started at the university of Chicago and decided, well, I'll do that for myself. And I actually started a group here in my home where I've got about nine men who come here on the third Thursday of the month. And we, we conduct a little Socratic seminar over what we read that month. We've been meeting for about five, five years. And one of the men in my group is Brett McKay of art of manliness. Brett said, Hamburg, this is awesome. You need to get this. You need to move this online so other people can do this. I'm like, oh shit, you know, <laughs> that's all I need is another job, you know? Right. But we, but, <laughs> but we kicked it off in January of 20, what was it? 2018. And now we've got hundreds and hundreds of people reading Aristotle right now. And so we, we ship a book to them. We give them their reading goals. They're texted to them on their phone. Um, they have a little app. It's, te- it's sent to their app so that we've got a lot of, uh, so we kind of shepherd it through them so that if they read these for 30 minutes a day, six days a week, they end up reading 10 or 12 books a year. And then once a month we host online in zoom like this, a Socratic seminar. So where somebody that works with me and is trained to do it, runs a seminar and, um, acts, uh, and he plays the role of Socrates and asks the hard questions and drills these people and works them through the book um, so that they can start to work through that sort of trivium kind of thing themselves. So you read the book, you start to understand it. That's the grammar part. And then, then you, when you start to kind of get the, the thing in your mind and then eventually you get where you can, you figure out what it is Aristotle saying, you see the logic of his arguments. And then you go to the seminar and you have to speak convincingly about it and you have to speak well about it. And that's the rhetoric part. So it's, um, it's a very, it's a very loose approach to that, that trivium thing. But for adults, but for adults who can't sit down with a Latin text and don't have the time or the resources to put a group together and go at it the classic way, it's really, it, it really works. So anyway, that's how it came about. So for like me, um, to be completely transparent, I have an eighth grade education for yeah. life reasons and, and poor choices and lack of guidance and, um, by the way, sir, I, I don't know that, I don't know that that's a bad thing. Well, it's, it's, I have a very different education. That's right. Um, different. And it's, and it's, um, it's brought me far and I've, I've, I've done a lot with it. You know, there was definitely some insecurity as a man, uh, feeling right. less than, and over the years I have thought to myself, not that different from the way you were speaking about there's a gap. I need to learn these yep. things. And, but it was also very intimidating, but fortunately now with, you know, everything we have at our fingertips, Anytime I want to know about something, I can just find it. That's right. But being able to um, articulate a thought like that from about these books is very enticing to me. And so you tell yeah. me how y'all break it down with the small goals and the the app and 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 really the coaching. Yeah, yeah, we do. We do a lot of coaching. The first man, listen. I'm proud as hell of you. Oh, thanks. I, I really am. Uh, 
I wish I had walked out when I was in the, in the eighth grade. I know you're saying, yeah, it's easy for you to say. Uh, people take a lot of damage, 9 through 12, man. You know, that's when you start to become who you are, and that's when they start telling you who you are. And uh, I'm getting teared up about it. I, uh, public schools have hurt, hurt way more people than they've helped. Uh, I'm, I'm 100% convinced of it. And the less we can have our children involved, you could just, you just, you could just tell yourself you were homeschooled for that last four years. Yeah. It was uh, street school. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, it pisses me off. Uh, but, but we, we break these reading goals down so that the average, so our normal person can get it done in 30 day, 30 minutes a day for six days a week. And I'll tell you, sometimes they read quite a bit because it reads easy and it's fun and it just bounces right along. But I'm reading Aristotle's Metaphysics right now. We can talk about what metaphysics is. Please. It's in it's in my bedroom, dude. It took me an hour to read five pages. Uh, that's about the twenty third book our people read. So they're 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 getting to be old hands by the time they get that one in their hands. But so but our reading goals fluctuate based on how fast it is and how slow it is. And we let them know, hey, this is gonna be tough. This is gonna be it's going to be hard hoeing this week. Sure. You know, so we let them know, but the first book we read is called how to read a book by Mortimer J. Adler in the forties. Adler, he's kind of the patron saint of this program that we do. Uh, he wrote this book called how to read a book. Cause he felt like people really didn't know how to read. They might know how to like read a newspaper article or maybe a carburetor repair manual. Yeah. But if somebody, but if somebody makes an argument over like 40 pages, of why a certain political system is the best political system. They might have trouble holding all those ideas together, finding them, assembling it in their mind and so, you know, to get the grammar of the thing and then the logic of the thing and then be able to describe it to somebody else. So he wrote this book. It's a, it's a fairly thick book, but the first 184 pages is really how to read the book. It's not phonics. It's not the alphabet. They assume you can already read. Sure but it's that higher level kind of reading. And then the last half of it is like, well, this is how you read uh, uh, literature. This is how you read poetry. This is how you read specific kinds of things. But we, we cover that first 184 pages. That's the first thing we do. And we, we try to walk them through that uh, and, and hold hands as much as we can. And then the next book we read is Homer's the Iliad and the Iliad's bear. Uh, it's a bear uh, with the, the, the translation we picked, we picked not because it was the most accurate because it read, but because it read the best because we want to help people wade into the deep end. Sure. And uh, we ship them that book. And then seven, seven, eight, nine, ten days after that book, we hold, we offer what we call a close reading session uh, where we, where one of our, one of our seminar hosts gets in a Zoom like this and actually reads the first chapter with them to show them, you know, this is how fast you should be going. And this is what goes through my mind as I'm reading this. And he kind of shares his inner, inner, inner dialogue as he's opening it up and reads it to them, you know, what, you know, and, and, and models for them what close reading looks like answers questions about close reading. Um, and then three weeks after that, they have their seminar over the, over the Iliad. And, um, uh, uh, so we try to, we try to hold those hands and help people. Everybody can do it. Uh, but they lack the confidence and sometimes the practice sometimes to, to just wade in there. But so we do quite a bit to try to help them with that. Uh, and 
I, I believe these books are great because they meet everybody right where they are. Uh, the Iliad, everybody knows a little bit of something about it. That's where we learn about Achilles. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where we were, were, uh, learn about the tr- Troy. Spoiler, at the end, the Trojan horse is not in it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we learn about Achilles, and we learn about Helen of Troy. And and, um, and if, you know, for a young person or an immature person or something, I don't know, it's just an action novel. You know, it's just it's it's, it's just one of the best action stories ever told, action and adventures. Um, but we've got a guy at Online Great Books who's like 85, and uh, Priam, who's the sort of king of Troy, uh, sees his children die on the battlefield. You know, and so for that older man, it was very it was about sort of end of life and what what's your uh, what's your legacy like, and you know, it was about death and it's. You know, it, so it whoever you are, these books have got they meet you right where you are, and they've got the thing you need in them. So if we've got you know, we've got I think we've got a fifteen year old, so they're reading the Iliad, and you know they have a fifteen year old's experience of it, uh, which is which is just fine. But now that fifteen year old, when they get done, he's going to have read it at least once. Sure. <laughs> so so when he comes back to it, most of the people I know who've read the Iliad read it about every five years for the rest of their life. And every time you read it, you're different, and it's different. Um, yeah, so the books they books tend to have the depth that you need. That's one of the reasons why they're great books and why everybody's read. People read the Iliad for, well, it was oral. People had it recited to them. But they've been, they've been knowing that one for 3,000 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's probably the most read thing in the, ever, even more than the Holy Bible, the Christian Bible. It's just ancient and uh, loved and there's it ain't an accident yeah have you um have your daughters read any of these yeah they have um they have my youngest one my, my youngest one's kind of a, a mathy kind of a little creature and uh uh she hasn't read that much of the stuff but my older one is more into this and um and has read um how to read a book i think she's read the iliad and the odyssey um she's read a little bit of plato She's read some plays. Um, oh gosh, what did she read most recently? Uh, she read some um, Robinson Crusoe, Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. Yeah, so uh, they have. They haven't done it the way I would have them do it, <laughs> but uh, but but I, they will. I know they will. Hard to coach your kids. Yeah, I don't even try to. Like I, you know, you you. you, you you cram it down their throat and they just throw it back up, you know? Yeah. Um, and then they never want it. <clears throat> then they never want it. They're going to, they'll, they'll be there. It's fine. Yeah. It's just fine. Everybody out their own time. Yeah. So you, um, how many members do y'all have now? Uh, we've got, we've got about 600 right now. Good for you. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Yeah. The people are, people are getting after it, man. And, um, um, uh, next week, if you're if you're one of our members, you can go to any seminar we have. You don't have to go to just yours. We have, we run about sixty a month, and we've got we've got some weird ones that have cropped up because people have said you know they wanted to learn about something, and so we've got one that starts next week. It's on Euclid's geometry. Mm-hmm. We send them this little thin book, book one of Euclid's Elements of Geometry, and you start with a definition, and we and they do this stuff together in a seminar. We start with a definition. I'll read the first definition. 
I start with a definition. Uh, oh my gosh. A point is that which has no part. And then point, the definition two is a line is a breadthless length. And they just define some of these terms. And then at the very last proposition here, they will have proved the Pythagorean theorem to themselves. You know, which you learned in school, maybe they just, they just, they just teach you this magic formula, a squared plus B squared equals C squared. Mm -hmm. And then, but you don't know what it means. It's just a magic formula. You know, you're like, Oh, if I need to find the si the length of this long side, I just have to do this. Well, they work through this and then they know where it came from. And if they ever forgot a squared plus B squared equals C squared with a straight edge and a compass, they could get back to it. Well, they, yeah, it's amazing. They, they know it's the logic amazing. of it. Yeah. Or it's it, amazing. Or is it the grammar of it? Well, all of it, like the grammar, it starts with the definitions you see, yeah. which is the grammar of the subject. And then you learn how to do the constructions and the proofs, which is the logic of the thing. And then if you can sit down and show somebody else or do it on your own from scratch, you know, then you're starting to get the rhetoric of the thing where you speak convincingly or beautifully about it. That was one thing with my daughter is, uh, it, it made me think of this, it, you know, when she was younger in school, spelling words sp yeah spelling lists spelling test it was such a, before she had standardized testing that was the big stressor in her life and i mean it was like all of her value as a, as a pupil was was based on that and all yep. they were doing was teaching her she was memorizing words but she had no idea phonically why they sounded the way they did or right. how they how they worked or why they were uh, spelled the way they were and I never could understand why they just didn't teach them that. And so it right. wasn't until later on when she learned the phonics of things at the, at the home, like the tutoring place she went to for homeschool um, that she started to excel at that. See, see, this is part of the progressive movement in education. So, you know, we, we throw around this term, Oh, they're a liberal progressive. We throw that around now and it doesn't really mean what I'm talking about. There was a group of philosophers in the 1880s to maybe the 1950s or 60s that were the American progressives. And they said that the way you figure out if something is true or not is if it works. Like the efficacy of the thing is how you decide if something's true or not. I'm kind of Aristotelian. I think there's other ways. But that's what they would say. And they said, well, golly, you know, why would we teach every kid in the world phonics if we could just get them to memorize these 800 words and then they can read any technical manual they need. They can work at the, at the Ford plant. Oh, boom, boom. You know, it's a waste of time. And, it's, and, and actually, frankly, I think that Dewey, the chief of those guys, would say it wasn't respectful of their time, even the kids' time, to teach them, go through all the work to teach them phonics when they're just going to work down at, the, down at the plant. You know, it's unnecessary. Let's give them the training they need for the life they're going to have, which means which there's a lot of stuff packed in there. They're assuming they know what the kid's life's going to be like. And they're, and they're not, they're not, um, they're not playing to the full potential of the child by teaching them that sight reading. Sure. And not teaching them phonics. And so that's where, that's kind of where that phonics thing came from. <clears throat> or not phonics, the sight, the sight word recognition reading method came from. It's uh, infuriating to me. I'm glad she got her phonics, man. I mean, it really changed everything, you know? I yeah. Mean, and I mean, if you don't know how something works, then you can never, you can never repair a deficiency in it. 
Yep. Um, so <clears throat> you, how do you choose the books? Like, a, it, I mean, I know That's people a, request, but like, I'm sure you started with like an, an initial list of these are the books that I think men or women. Um, yep. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Th- th- I mean, yes. Um, most of these, like if you go to the internet and you Google great books list, you're going to see two kinds of lists. One of them is just like our favorite 100 books, you know, and you know, that one's, that one's just going to be, who knows what that's going to be, but you're going to, you're going to see another kind of list. Um, in most of this other kind, the sort of great books of the Western world list, the Western canon, they call it, those lists are going to be 80, 90% identical. Probably they're going to have Aristotle in them. They're going to have Shakespeare in them. They're going to have, um, heck they're gonna have Karl Marx in them. They're going to have, um, they'll probably have the American declaration of independence in them. They're going to have Plato, um, uh, um, St. Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, Descartes. You're going to see those names over and over and over again. And so people agree 80, 90% that those are sort of the great books of the Western world, but it's not because they did a personal assessment about what's best. That's not what it is. If you said, if you went to the library and you were a smarty pants kid and the librarian cared about you, she might say, here's, here's Shakespeare. Go read this. And if you were flipping through Shakespeare, you're going to see that he mentions that he mentions Augustine, Plutarch, Plato, Homer, Homer, like the Iliad and all that. And so if you're like, if you really cared and you wanted to understand that, if you really want to understand that book, you'd go look up Plutarch. And then Plutarch, he wrote this book, uh, Lives of Famous, of, uh, of uh, oh my gosh, I just lost my, they call it Plutarch's Lives, Lives of uh, Ancient Greeks and Romans, where he did these little uh, biographies about these famous uh, Greek and Roman characters. And so if you went through there, you're going to see all the best authors and statesmen of their time. And anyway, these books all refer to each other. So if you went ready, Sigmund Freud, he's going to talk about Nietzsche. You go read Nietzsche. He's going to talk about Hegel. Then you go read Hegel. Then Hegel talks about eventually Aristotle. You go read Aristotle and he talks about his teacher who was Plato. And then Plato talks about, has um, some of the Aristophanes who wrote a bunch of Greek comedies is a character in some of Plato's dialogues. Then you go read Aristophanes. And you all, you know, they all lead back to Homer. So if you care and you do your research, when somebody in one of these great books brings up another one of these authors or quotes from another one of these books, you, and you go back to that book, it quotes the one before it. And there, it's like a big, long conversation that's taken 3,000 years where these guys just keep, they just keep building on each other. But some of them are trying to tear the other one down. It's not one thing. Like uh, Adam Smith wrote this, he's the father of modern economics. He wrote The Wealth of Nations. He's the one that talked about the invisible hand of the market. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's described supply and demand curves. And uh, it's a a wonderful book. Well, he's he's the free market guy. Well, almost everybody agrees that Karl Marx's communist economics texts, Das Kapital, Das Kapital, whatever, should be in the canon too. And those guys couldn't disagree more. But everybody agrees they should both be in the list. Um, Aristotle and Plato couldn't hardly disagree more, but they're both on the list. So it's it's about this great conversation. It's not 
it doesn't really necessarily draw conclusions, but the whole damn thing teaches you how to think and argue fairly about important stuff. That's the whole point of the thing. And that's what makes these books so, so good. These, these, these figures, that's what makes them so good at writing these books is they're, they're, they're just a, towering a, geniuses, <laughs> you know? Oh my God. I, I read, I read Plato and I read Aristotle and the guys just, they're, they're so smart. It just jumps off the page at you. They're, they are intimidating. You guys are geniuses. It's ridiculous. But but they're but they're writing about and talking about and thinking about all the stuff that matters. Like, how does somebody have the best life they can? Oh, okay, that's a good question. But before we get to that question, we have to ask, what's best? Like, you can't have the best life possible if you don't know what is best. Well, you can argue about what's best. Well, for three thousand years, and they have been. But you need to really think about that, especially if you're a father and you're trying to raise kids. What's best? And we, we talk about we want to do what's best for our kids. Okay, I agree. That sounds awesome. But how do you know? What's the yardstick whereby you know what's best? And so they argue about that. That's a bedrock. That's really what ethics is about. That's a bedrock question that these guys talk about over and over and over again. Because it doesn't matter like what wealth class, <clears throat> what religion, what, what uh, party you assign to. I mean, if you have your ethics in check. And everybody believes this is how you're a good human being, then then you can navigate through this world in your own culture and still be a good human being. Yeah, yeah. Um, listen, if you if you if you're interested, or any of your listeners are interested in starting this or take, dipping your toe in, you can go out there on the internet and you it's out of it's out of copyright. Plato hasn't been getting royalties in a long time. Uh, you can get Plato's dialogue. It's called the Mino, M-E-N-O, where he talks to one of his buddies named Mino, Socrates. Plato always writes about Socrates. He never writes about himself. Socrates was Plato's teacher, and then Plato was Aristotle's teacher. But uh, Socrates is talking to one of his buddies, Mino, and they're they're always in the marketplace or at the dinner table when they have these dialogues, and they read great. Plato's fun to read. You'll love it. You can go read the Benjamin Jowett translation. It's free. It's out there everywhere. And in the Mino, guy comes up to Socrates and says, hey, Socrates, do you think virtue can be taught? Are people just born virtuous or do they get taught somehow? Like, can, do you think virtue can be taught? And Socrates goes, wait, King's X. We got to figure out what virtue is first because I don't even know what you're talking about. And then off they go. Because that's the, that's the problem. Like, what's virtue? Like, how do you do it? And uh, they say, well, it's the one that can lead best. Because the people that can lead men, those are the most virtuous people among us. So it must be related to re- leadership. And Socrates is like, no. Unless they lead them by ask, fear. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So he asked a bunch of questions like, well, how could that be? If that's the case, what if they lead by right? I mean, that's a question that he might ask. And they say, oh, yeah, maybe. So they, they go down multiple rat holes about what virtue could potentially be. Uh, and then later on, they talk about education and um, Aristotle, or not Aristotle, Socrates, and maybe Plato. We really don't know what Plato meant, thought because he always writes about his teacher. He never really writes about himself. Uh, puts forth that maybe we don't, maybe, maybe we don't, maybe we don't learn anything. Maybe we just remember it. It's like maybe we had all the ideas when we were born, and we were just being born was so traumatic. Like we have access to this other world of perfect forms and perfect ideas. He's sort of proto-Christian that way. It's like, we have this access to this 
heavenly dimension of perfect ideas. And, and childbirth is so traumatic, we forget. And then when we learn something, we really just remember something we already knew. And uh, which seems crazy, but then you realize like, well, you know, that thing I was struggling to learn, like all of a sudden I had this moment. I was like, aha, like you just like, boom, it's just there. Like you struggle, 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 boom, it's there. Almost seems like you remember it, you know? Like divine intelligence or something. Yeah, it, it's just those eureka moments, they don't sneak up on you. They hit you like a brick, you know? And uh, so, you know, it seems like maybe you you recollect them. Um, but one of the problems that that Plato and Socrates were very interested in is like, well, where does the knowledge come from? Like if me and you figure out some, some, some like the Pythagorean theorem, if we get a straight edge out, we just work on it for like three years and we figure it out for the first time, nobody's ever done it before. Like, where did that really come from? Like, how was that knowledge created? Where does it come from? And uh, Plato says, well, it must be over there. I mean, it, it has to reside somewhere. He doesn't think it was created. He think it has, it resides, it lives somewhere. And then we somehow get access to it and then remember it uh, because it's always, always there. And it has, I, I don't think he says that he doesn't have the same notion of like divinity that we would, but later on, the Neoplatonists, Plotinus, P-L-O-T-I-N-U-S, kind of decide that it is divine, that those ideas, those forms, those ideal ideas live somewhere, and there's sort of divinity in it, and there's sort of, uh, um, uh, there's, they, they have a uh, kind of proto-Christian spirituality around it, or early church spirituality around that, that those Platonic ideas. But anyway, you can, you can see, you can see a, a direct family tree of these ideas as you read this uh and you can see some more see how platonism frankly influenced christian theology Mm -hmm. and it all starts with the mino maybe have you have you have you um are there any modern day uh philosophers like this (sighs) like jordan peterson no i i don't think i um so I do a podcast, the online great books podcast, and I had Peterson on there. Uh, and we talked about Dante's divine comedy. That's his favorite book. And when we talked about the great books in general, we talked a little bit about Dante's divine comedy. And I, and I think Dr. Peterson knows his material. I think he's read these things better than I have. Uh, but I don't know that he's going to contribute to this great conversation in a way that people are reading about. Sure. Is in, in 300 years, 500 years. Uh, grateful the guys out there reading it and talking about it and introducing people to these ideas. Um, but he has a, um, uh, there's some sort of stoicism about him, you know, take care, clean your room, take care of your own business, toughen up bucko. I mean, that's kind of the Stoics. That's kind of the Roman Stoics. And, uh, and he also has some notions of, uh, uh, I don't know, kind of, divine accountability and retribution and kind of stuff like that maybe that that really come from Dante and I think he would say that they do I think he would tell you that that's so um but I don't know that there's anything terribly new there I don't want to just deuce on the guy because that's not because it's really hard to come up with something new like you're rubbing elbows with the smartest dudes that ever walk you know if you do that's tough do you have a favorite I I don't know do I uh yeah they change all the time yeah, uh, I'm re- I'm reading Henry David Thoreau's Walden right now because we're going to do a podcast about it in a, in a week or so, 
And uh, that one has been really influential on me for since I was 15, 16 years old. And, uh, uh, I, you know, man, it's a, I think it's a great book. I think it'll make the cut. You know, it takes hundreds of years to figure out if these things make the cut. <laughs> right. Uh, frankly, I think it takes some natural disasters. You know, there needs, you have to, if, if London, you know, London burned in the 1600s. I mean, the whole damn thing burned nearly. And you save the best things, you know, you know, so if there's a bubonic plague and then there's an enormous fire and so on, the few things that get saved on the other side of that were the best ones, you know, uh, it takes, it takes you centuries really to figure out which, what makes the cut. But anyway, I think Thoreau's, I think he's up there. He's distinctly American. You know, he's in Concord, Massachusetts in the 1840s, fifties. He's distinctly American. Um, He's a rugged individualist. Um, and uh, I think that um, he doesn't really express philosophy like some ordered philosoph philosophical thinkers do. Like, I think this for this reason and this reason and this reason, the conclusions are this. But, you know, he tells these stories about his life and how he would behave. And you see that he has this entirely new American outlook on life. You know, your life exists for your own purposes. Um, you're not here to create agriculture products for the Lord of the manor because you're an English serf in the 1500s or 1300s. Um, you're not an industrial clog. You know, you're not a, a, an organ of the church. You're a sovereign American person on the soil that has a life given to you for your own purposes in that it's your duty to live it for your own purposes. Um, it, yeah. And I think that, I mean, that, that was, that's what the American project has been about. I think it was an entirely new thing. People never had never really thought that way before. So we kind of take it for granted, but everybody fit in some sort of other structure outside of themselves prior, prior to the formation of the American project, which started in 1603 and ended in 1861, in my opinion. But, um, but he, he really encapsulates that. And uh, I, I love it. I love it. He's been so influential on me forever. And the book's funny. He's a dick. I mean, he's, he's, it's funny. And he's so, uh, he's just so good. He's so good. He's just an American. He's just an American dude, but he's just super smart. There's, there are all kinds of funny stories about him. He, uh, he didn't, I don't think he lived to be 40. I think he died when he was in his thirties and famously he was on his deathbed and his aunt comes in and says, Henry, have you made your, have you made your peace with your Lord? And he said, I, listen, I didn't know we fought. Yeah. <laughs> I thought we were good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, he's just full of one-liners like that all the time. And uh, uh, he's just a great guy. Yeah. I think he's one of my uncles. I consider him to be one of my uncles. You know? Excellent. You he's, find he's, he's helped him. me a lot. Yeah. He's helped me a lot for a lot of years. Yeah. That's my favorite now. Well, um, I don't want to take any more of your time on a Saturday morning. Oh, I can talk all day. I appreciate you uh, you reaching out and getting hooked up with us. Where um, where can guys find you, and where can they find? Um, well, what about your podcast? Let's start with that. Well, I do I do a whole bunch of podcasts. Okay, <laughs> we have the online great books podcast where we talk about one of these things. One of these things we did one on um, Ralph Waldo Emerson's self reliance. Mm -hmm. He he was one of the Thoreau's. Um, mentors. And so he wrote a book, he wrote an essay called Self-Reliance about being self-reliant, this distinctly American thing. We did a show about that. 
uh, that that Jordan Peterson episode is I think number five there that comes out every Thursday online great books podcast and I do the barbell logic podcast where we talk about strength training we do that with my partner Matt Reynolds um, but you if you're interested in what we do at online great books you could go to onlinegreatbooks.com slash circle excellent and you can and you can sign up for our waiting list because we only open enrollment about every eight weeks and then uh, you'll get first uh, first uh, first dibs on a spot when we open and then we send you a bunch of materials about how we do this thing and what we do and some reading aids we send you a bunch of white papers and interesting things uh, in the meanwhile and then when, when you sign up you can use the promo code circle and you'll get 25 percent off your first three months and it'll support this show too so you can go to the top there excellent well, I appreciate that. I'm going to go sign up yeah. myself so I can get coached through these books. And Hey, listen, everybody, I, everybody's sufficient to do this. I'm going to get mad. We, we, we do this and all these people come in and, and, and I always say that once you're in here, you're better than everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> but once you start doing this stuff, you see that, that we start seeing things that have been lost for other people. Uh, but, but what I see, but, but when our members come in, every time we sign up a, a new raft of people, a new flight of enrollment, we have people email and they want homework. It's like, what's my homework? Well, it's just to read. Uh, we have a hard time teaching people. We talked about all the things we do to help them learn to read the books and to help them, you know, kind of shepherd them through those first books. Uh, but one of the things we have to do to get them to do that is to let them know that they're sufficient. You know, you're enough. You're enough. You can do it. Not only can you do it, but the books are so darn good. They're right there for you wherever you need them to be. And uh, yeah, so we spend a lot of time telling people you're enough. You don't have to go read the Wikipedia page about the Iliad before you read it, before you read the Iliad. In fact, if you read the Wikipedia page first, it'll poison your ideas about it. I ran a, I ran a seminar one time, one of our discussions about the Iliad and there was an ER nurse in there and there was a, an Iraq war vet in there. And this thing's about death and destruction. And those two people brought their experience of car wrecks and uh, roadside bombs and so on to that seminar and, and we created together, them more than me, uh, the exact discussion about that book that needed to happen for that group of people. And if they had gone and read the Wikipedia page about the Iliad first, they would have not have had nearly such a personal experience of the Iliad. And then they wouldn't have been able to share that very unique, real experience about the Iliad with all the other people in their seminar. Mm-hmm. secondary sources poison the well. We don't give a shit what other people think about the book. We care about what you think about it. And you should care what you, this is more Thoreau and Emerson. You need to care about what you think about the book. It doesn't matter what the expert says. In fact, that's poison. The only thing that you're the expert about your life and you're reading these for your own life's purpose. So we stay away from those people like poison. Yeah. And so we have a really hard time getting people to do that in the beginning. They want help, you know, and we use some help. We want to look at maps. We want to know where Troy was. You know, we want to look at a timeline with Socrates before or after the birth of Christ. You know, we need to know some of those things. Paint we don't visual. care what, 
Yeah, but we don't care what other people think about that book. We care what you think. And you, that's the only thing you should care. And that's where they meet you where, where you're at. Yeah. That's right. Well, that's, that's, I mean, that's an interesting take on it. So, I mean, you don't have to be a scholar to understand these books or, and you don't have to be an, uh, highly educated. You, you will interpret it with your own life experience and then, and translate it and take it with you however you need it. Yeah. You know, experts haven't really existed very long. <laughs> right. You know, you know, was there a Homer expert, uh, an Iliad expert? How about this? Uh, Shakespeare was writing plays, 1580s, 90s, early part of the 1600s. And, and they were just putting them on down there at the local place, the Globe Theater. And people would come and they'd pay a little bit and sit on the floor. They'd pay a little more and sit in a box seat. And uh, open ceiling. I could rain on them. You know, didn't have a roof. And that's just what people would do. You know, across the street from the Globe Theater was like a bear and dog fighting arena. <laughs> so if you wanted to go get entertained on a Saturday, you could go down there and watch Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, or you could take your money and you could go across the street and watch bears and dogs fight. I mean, it was just entertainment. There was no such thing as a Shakespearean scholar at the time. Sure. It was just going to the movies. Yeah. There, the expert class is a new phenomenon that is part of the whole industrialization and specialization that has happened. And there didn't used to be specialists in this. And there were, you know, some people say, oh, that's not true. What about this guy? There have been definitely been scholars who have done, like Thomas Aquinas, that did a deep dive on Aristotle and then layered and suffused Christianity throughout it and then stated new and cleaner ideas on top of that. He was certainly an Aristotelian scholar. But by and large, there weren't and there shouldn't have been. And uh, we're trying really hard to <laughs> overthrow expert culture. Uh, with our, with our little project. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, I mean, with the way that, um, social media is now and there's so much influence and, and if, if you go by everybody else's opinion, you'll never have your own. You'll just be parroting or regurgitating whatever you just read on some post Yeah, that has no real editorial process or any fact checking or anything, or you could read something like this and then just start developing your own life view and be able to join this 3000 year old conversation with some um, perspective. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I, we tell people that, that this thing will make you know why you believe the things you believe. You know, I think that we get to like 21 years old. We got a bunch of ideas that were poured in our ear from school, from church, from mom and dad. And a lot of those ideas might be a hundred percent right, but you don't know why they're right. Right. When you're a young person, you just got to kind of stay between the ditches and keep out of trouble. Yeah. Right. So whatever keeps them out of the bars, you know, that's good. We'll tell them that. But at some point you have to know why you have to shore up your beliefs. Some of them you got to toss them out, but you got to at least shore them up. And when you start going through this stuff, you can shore up your own beliefs and you'll revise some. I've revised a whole bunch for sure. Um, but, but that's why we do it. We do it for the purposes of our own life, you know, to lead the, uh, the good life, whatever that is. I do know the older I get, the more full of shit I realize I've been. Oh Yeah. So it's like how, how, how dumb will we think we were, we are when, when we're like 80, you think something that you were pounding your chest about five years earlier. And it's like, good God, I hope nobody remembers that. Right. But with social good. media, it's out there. Yeah. Yeah. Social media is gross. Well, oh well, Mr. Hambrick, I appreciate you taking the time to meet with us. I appreciate hey, the, uh, the, uh, circle of dad's offer for your, for your, uh, 
website there, and I hope some of these guys will sign up for it. Yeah, I hope so too, guys. Uh, you don't have to do it with us. You know, these books are, you know, they're free. Get a library card. Uh, I say that people tend to join us for the accountability uh, because they can go get these books, like I said, for free. They can get them at the used bookstore for a dollar a piece, typically. Sure. Uh, they, they tend to join us for the accountability. And they end up staying because of that seminar experience. Uh, but, hey, start grouping your own home. Go read how to read a book. Get Get started and get started. You don't have to do it with us. It's just important. Like ain't nobody going to get rich off online, great books. We just want people to read these books and keep the lights on here in Western civilization. <laughs> That's what we're trying to do. Excellent. So yeah, go to onlinegreatbookscom slash circle and use that promo code circle when you sign on up and uh, get that, get that discount. And then we'll, uh, then we'll know where you came from. We can help uh, Ryan out. I definitely appreciate that. Well, sir, thank you. I hope you have a good Saturday. Hey, and, thank uh, you. You too. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. I really want to uh, thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. You do not have to be perfect, but you do have to be present. Love runs downhill. We chase those kids till the day we die. I'm Ryan. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.